Okay, let's do this. Welcome to Curious Conversations, episode 23. Going to keep this introduction quite brief uh, because the guest I've got on, you've, you've heard him before. And so if you want to delve back into his previous episodes, he was on episode 14 and episode 6. His name's Paul Meldrum. If this is your first time listening in to Curious Conversations, uh, the basic concept is that I wanted to create a long-form conversational podcast where we focus on the areas of health, happiness, nutrition, and psychology. And we look at them from perspectives that maybe aren't often thought of. And so I've been doing my best to dig up some guests and, and get them in on to talk about that. And I've already rambled longer than I thought I would. Now... Just briefly before we get into the podcast, if you were listening last week, I mentioned that I am now running online nutrition coaching. So if you are interested in this and you're looking to build some consistency and healthy habits and you want accountability around that, um, this program is for you. It caters to people of any kind of uh, nutritional background and we were able to make small changes which lead to a large, big change in your body composition. If you would like some more information on that, just email me. My uh, normal email is nick.allen.pt at gmail.com. If you email me through there, I'll get straight back to you and we can have a bit of a chat and see if it's a, a good fit for you. The other thing that I normally like to mention at the top of these podcasts is that if you want to support the podcast, uh, if you are getting some value from it and you want to help people at the same time, We've got a Everyday Hero page over on the Facebook page uh, and the money doesn't go to me, it goes to Lifeline. Um, Lifeline, if you haven't heard of it and you're not in Australia or, or you're in Australia and you haven't heard of it, um, they basically provide counseling for people who are in personal distress um, by offering them on the phone counseling. So I think the concept around this is really good because it's it's how I believe a lot of people can get out of these stressful situations is talking to somebody who is qualified on the issue. So if you do want to provide some support, I'll be able to see anybody who donates over there um, and that would be awesome. Even if you you know somebody who is going through a bad time, they're suffering from anxiety or depression, uh, this would be a great way to support them is just make a donation to Lifeline. That's it for the housekeeping. Uh, today's guest is Paul Meldrum. He is the owner of DC Performance Health, uh, which is in St. Leonard's in Sydney. Uh, along with that, he's also got a diploma in kinesiology uh, and he's done numerous other courses um, within the personal training industry. Today, we wanted to talk about rehab because Paul's been going around to a few different clubs within my network um, and talking to the trainers there. And what we noticed is that trainers are severely underknowledged. I do not know if that's a word, on the ideas around rehab and on the concepts of how to integrate rehab into their training with clients. So Paul wanted to come on and provide you with a framework that they use over at DC Performance Health. And this is something that you could use whether you're a personal trainer or whether you're just somebody who's interested in health and fitness. Um, if you would like to find out some more details, he mentions it at the end, but if he's got some courses coming up specifically on rehab as well because there is a gap in the industry there so if you'd like to find some more information out on that you can add him on facebook which is paul meldrum or you can head over to his uh business page which is dc performance health uh, on facebook otherwise if you are a personal trainer and you're listening to this i'd highly recommend jumping onto a group that luke tullock started who i've also interviewed on this podcast 
called the PT Trainer Upskill. Uh, and you can find out any sort of information that you want. You can ask any questions on there. I recommend it. It's a really good group. I am a bit in the background, just reading comments and reading through what people are asking, but I, I want to be more active on there. So that's what I'm going to start doing. Without further ado, I said I was going to keep this short and I went for five minutes. This is uh, Paul Meldrum on rehab. sitting here with Paul Meldrum. Um, today we're going to talk about rehab. So this is a topic that Paul's really passionate about and I think he's been able to see that there's a, almost a gap in the industry with personal trainers not quite understanding how to rehab people and also for your general population person who's out there and, and is interested in listening to this, probably not having, knowing the first steps to getting yourself better without necessarily having to consult somebody. It's probably the best first option. <laughs> but. Um, Let's, let's start with the first question. So, Paul, what problems do you currently see or did you see with PTs and rehab? Cool. So there's a number of problems I ha have seen. first problem has been scope of practice. So a lot of trainers violate the scope of practice on an alarmingly regular level. So this, we've seen this in the past with the uh, hormonal modulation stuff that personal trainers have delved into, the functional medicine realm which they've delved into doing spinal manipulation, a whole bunch of other different things like that. You've seen PTs do spinal manipulation? Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely have. I've seen PTs do some really dumb shit. Uh, spinal manipulation being probably the least of the concerns. It's understanding the scope of practice for the condition and then knowing what the lane is. The role of a personal trainer isn't fundamentally to be a, entirely a rehab professional, but at the same time to disregard that is it's asinine and it limits the amount of clientele that you work with. If someone comes in and they've torn an MCL, for example, a medial collateral ligament in their knee or medial cruciate, they need to see a medical professional like stat. They need to see a doctor, physical therapist, they need to get it diagnosed and get it worked with. The thing with a trainer, if someone comes in with a sore knee and there's no real condition, the trainer's in the ideal situation to work with that. If we aren't working with clients in pain, we're really limiting the amount of clients that we can work with. And I've seen trainers who, like I've mentored trainers who have extremely good skills in body composition work, incredibly good skills in developing muscular hypertrophy um, and doing performance, but they've got no foundational understanding of human movement and what human movement should be underneath that. So in terms of what trainers need to do to become better at that is to understand that all training is essentially rehab and all rehab is essentially training. That's the first fundamental thing. If a but for example, if someone has a low back problem and they lack the ability to hinge at the hips, what's the main thing we do to hinge our hips in training populations? We do deadlifts. It's yeah. a hip hinge movement. If someone can't hip hinge, they've got to learn how to essentially do a deadlift. It doesn't matter if it's with a broomstick, if it's with a kettlebell, a dumbbell, a sandbag, or a barbell. It's still fundamentally the same thing. All rehab is, is the lowest end of the spectrum of the training environment because all physical therapy exercises are just done to elicit an adaptation. They're trying to elicit an adaptation in muscular tissue, ligamentous tissue, cartilage, whatever, increased bone density, whatever. After it's just low-level training, and the whole point of rehab is to be able to take someone from low-level training back into normal levels of defined function and pain-free movement, 
and then take them past that to A, bulletproof them, not that it's entirely possible to do that, but to bulletproof them from future injury and then lead them to a higher level performance. So trainers recognize that A, they're not doctors, they're not uh, physios, they know where they're at and they realize what they can work with. They then can, you can then see that there's a whole realm that we of clientele that aren't getting served properly and aren't getting what they want. I can't imagine anything more frustrating than being a trainer and working with a client, working really hard, getting them on the nutrition, getting them on their training, training them hard, being there at 6 a.m. in the morning, and they stop, they lose the ability to do, like, say, shoulder presses, something as basic as that, because the basic understanding of these principles isn't met. It's strikes, it just strikes me as really strange. Like, if you can stop that from happening, basically rehab or prehab that, you're going to have your clients for a much longer period of time, and they're going to, you're going to get referrals and get a better business. It just seems silly to me. Yeah, and I worked for I worked for a company when I very first came out of personal training that it was sort of like if they have an injury, don't do the exercises that exasperate the injury. But there was no emphasis on actually rehabbing them or, or getting them, giving them back the ability to do that movement uh, in the future. So having a basic understanding is really important for most personal trainers out there. Absolutely, and the thing is with the injury. Uh, the biggest risk factor for, uh, for new injury is previous injury. So if you don't rehabilitate the pattern or the movement in which they injured themselves in, you're setting them up, setting the client up for further re-injury. How many clients hurt, them, hurt their shoulders bench pressing, or gym goers for that matter, hurt their shoulders bench pressing, get better by rest, doing whatever they may do, doing their band exercises, and then they hurt themselves bench pressing again. Exactly. They deadlift. They hurt themselves deadlift again. They squat. Runners. Runners are notorious. Uh, oh, I hurt myself running. I pulled my hammy. I'm going to rest a bit. I'm going to go run again. Bang. There goes the hammy again. So it's, uh, it's something that really needs to be addressed and how we uh, look at what caused the injury. What are the factors that we can do to actually help the body heal at a better rate? How can we heal the damaged tissues and how we can we get those damaged tissues stronger? What was causing the problem to prevent this from happening again? Cool. I think that leads pretty pretty well into my next question. So that's good. Um, so well, we'll jump into it. So yeah, if absolutely. there was a model for rehabbing somebody who comes into you who doesn't have obviously a really acute injury where it's sort of suddenly happened and they should be off seeing a specialist, it's more like I've got a sore knee or I've got a my shoulder's been causing me a little bit of pain. How do we start to begin the process of rehabilitating that that injury? Cool. So this is the uh, process that we follow at DC Health. I like the word, the use of the word acute. Um, obviously, for any person listening, trainer, uh, gym goer, exerciser, you have an acute injury, like it hurts, like immediately something swollen, you get figured out. Uh, if you bulge your disc, you don't have to go see a trainer, like immediately. It's, yeah. uh, you need you to see. You don't it. have to go see your trainer. You don't have to see <laughs> yeah. your trainer immediately. Same when it settles down a little bit. If you're in a chronic type of condition, so you've had knee pain that's been going on for a long period of time, or shoulder pain, whatever it may be, that's where a trainer can really help and also improve you in the long run if they're trained in these principles. So for us, the first thing we do when someone comes in, and this is regardless of injury uh, or anything, this is just overall how we do things. First thing we start off here with is a movement screen. So we wanna look at how clients move in gross patterns of movement, macro movements. Uh, because realistically at the gym, we're doing gross movements. We're doing multiple joint movements and we're loading them with repetition, weight, range of motion and volume. So really basically putting these movements into a lot, a lot more demand onto them. So if someone comes in, first thing we do is screen the movements. We screen just to, not only to see if they have any restrictions, but to see what variants of the main exercises we want to do. Yep. We want to find out what they can do in the gym without any restrictions, what they can't do yet. 
So what movements might be a bad idea for them and what they need to do. Because then once you figure out what you need to do, you can make what things that you can't do, things that you can do. Yep. So our goal is to get people back to this base level function where they can squat, deadlift, overhead press, uh, do lunges, run. Basically get people up to that from the movement screening process. Yep. So if a client comes in, generally if they're not in any pain at all, uh, they'll, they'll pass that movement screen. Uh, that we might find that they have one or two movements that they're not ready to do in the gym and we have, may have to regress them or give them some strategies to get up to that point. But if someone has pain, it becomes apparent very quickly. The screens are designed to elicit pain if there is a problem. Yep. So the client doesn't have a choice. We ask them very uh, simply at the beginning, does it hurt? Yeah, it's a yes or no question. It's not like, oh, little. It's, if it's a little, it's a yes. Yes. From there, because we look at the gross macro movements, we know what training effect, uh, what training exercise they're going to relate to. From here, we need to figure out what's caused the pain in that particular situation. So we have a combination of different testing protocols that we'll look at from there. The first one is basic length tension assessments. Yep. So that's classically considered a flexibility assessment. Um, and a lot of people get really caught in just looking for what muscles are short. Really, no muscles are actually short, but the quadricep attaches and originates where it is. It doesn't get shorter or longer. It just has higher degrees of tension. Yep. So we're looking for areas where the body has aberrant tension. From that, we find like someone has patellofemoral uh, pain and they've got just a ton of tension in their quads. Their quads are tense as anything. We may recommend something as basic as static stretching. Yep. They need to drop the neural tone in the quads. And that's something that a lot of personal trainers have shied away from because Static stretching was once has been reported to reduce maximum power output. My question is, which trainers are training uh, their Olympic level clients in their you know, commercial training facilities or their private training facilities doing maximal power generation stuff? Exactly. How yeah. many trainers are getting clients to do uh, bounding jumps and sprint? Not that many. And if you're doing, if you are reducing pain to get someone to be able to do a movement more completely, you're improving their strength and power anyway. Yep. More muscle, greater range of motion. Uh, means more muscle fibers get activated, which means more power. It's a really, really simple thought process for me. And if you are going to do some static stretching, it's not like you go static stretch your quads and then you go squat 100 kilos straight away. Yeah, exactly. There's warm-up sets, which dissipates that effect anyway. This is something I've been really big on because it has just become, like everyone's been shitting on static stretching. They shit on it. <laughs> and it it's, can be very good. Yeah. Particularly for a beginner client with a lot of range of motion restrictions. Um, and you know what, for older uh, people who've been training for a longer time, like an older training age, it can be a really useful tool as well. It's not a bad thing. We've got fitness industry as it's uh, been known to do, underreacts and overreacts to everything, like aerobic exercise. You know, we've, I think we've talked about that. Aerobic exercise was the devil. Yeah. Now everyone's getting into aerobic exercise at the moment, again, for heart rate and variability, increasing parasympathetic nervous system tone, uh, building people's recovery capacity, art and mitochondrial density, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there'll be an overreaction to it soon. Everyone's doing aerobic exercise. Yeah. Uh, not that it's a bad thing. Boring things you can do with the it's one of, <laughs> Yeah. It's something that you should do by yourself. You don't think you need a trainer vet to look at you on a treadmill. Yeah. If you do, you need to get some friends. You need to go to a bar or something. Um, I think killing my clients here. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but once we've done the screening process and the length tension assessments, just... How are you... The length tension, is that um, just taken through range of motion or are you actually checking tension Muscle. I'm just taking the muscle for range of motion. Okay. If it doesn't hit the range of motion, there's increased tension in that area. Yep. But from there, we want to make sure if there's anything else that's holding it back. So to give an example, commonly tight muscles are hamstring. Yep. Like how many males come in complaining their hamstrings are too flexible? It's never happened. Um, so the hamstring may have tension because it just has 
for a number of different reasons, but the main reason we find uh, in the gym is an underactive synergist. So a muscle that will help in that movement pattern. So the hamstrings, we want to think of what movement patterns they, they do. They flex the knee. Are there any synergists to that? Well, nothing that's a real prime mover, like nothing that's huge. And they're powerful hip extensors. So what muscle extends the hip? The glutes, yep. particularly the glute max. So we want to then perform, once you've found the muscles that have that increased tension, we want to perform neuromuscular assessments to find out what a client's preferred recruitment strategy is okay. for that particular thing. So to stick on my hamstring example, uh, we will look at the prone hip extension test, which tests the ability of hip extension, yep. the firing sequence. The correct firing sequence, or the preferable one, is hamstring, gluteus maximus, contralateral, so opposite side erector spinae, and same side erector spinae. We basically palpate the ham, the glute, and the erectors, get the client to extend the hip, and we feel what's going on. I totally understand some people will listen to this and say, yes, palpation changes recruitment patterns. Same with observation, everything changes it to some degree. You're just looking for patterns. Yep. It, no, nothing that I'm saying is an absolute 100%. It's uh, a very educated guess that takes you in the right direction. And if you apply it to the client and it works, then you're on point. If not, you have other options. Can I stop? What, what is palpating? Palpating is touching. Okay. So a soft, a gentle touch of a tissue to feel yep. what it is. So yeah, palpation, just touching a muscle. Yep. Uh, so obviously something to be careful with your clients when you palpate their glutes. Yes. Always ask. <laughs> <laughs> Always ask. So we may find that someone who's uh, got uh, low back pain, for example, uh, chronic low back pain, their back always feels tight and overworked. Uh, we may find that they're, or they've always got tight hamstrings. We'll use tight hamstrings. They've always got tight hamstrings. We palpate, we feel their hamstrings kick in straight away, we feel their back work, and their butt just isn't there. We don't feel any strong contraction in the glutes or exercise last, if at all. Yep. Means someone has really weak glutes. A lot of trainers will talk about that muscle doesn't activate. The muscle doesn't act. It's more of a, I guess, an expression than an actual fact. All muscles activate, the only way they don't activate is if you're dead. Yep. I would say it's just a very weak muscle and one that's not preferentially used. Yep. The body avoids it. It's just, it's, it certainly activates. So from there, we may find out, okay, cool, you've got tight hamstrings and you've got glutes that resemble a day-old pancake. Soggy, useless. We, from there, we will then perform a corrective exercise strategy based on simultaneously lengthening the hamstrings and strengthening the glutes at a low level. Yep. So one exercise we use a lot of time for that is the cook hip lift. It's a, to, it's hard to describe in audio, but you lay on your back, you bend one knee to 90 degrees, so your foot's flat on the ground. You pull the knee to the chest really tight, so your lower back flexes under. So what happens, it stops the lower back from extending the hip, and the hamstring of the leg that's on the ground is bent, so it's not in a good position to create force. Yep. So when you extend the hip, you have one choice, your butt. I'm retired at this lift. Just it's a it's a hard it's a hard <laughs> thing, and if, you just have to hold a tennis ball between the yeah that's well. the progression for it. Oh, to, okay. uh, and I'll explain why we do that. But um, a lot like one client uh, one trainer actually assessed that the crunch gym earlier this week on it. He did two reps in his hamstrings and they snapped off. He had right. so much tension in his hamstrings and his his hamstring length off the ground. I think he had 20 degree range of motion, and that's me being generous. Yeah. So we stretched out his hamstrings, did the lifts again, he went to 45 degrees range of motion. So an improvement, pretty good, 25 degrees in a minute. He needs to keep doing that. Yep. Um, with the tennis ball progression, what we do, that's to also create force in the opposite hip. So to actually strengthen the psoas muscle and create like a hip back disassociation. Okay. Uh, I'm actually gave that exercise to a sprinter from another gym on Tuesday who was struggling with that. They weren't getting proper hip extension for their glutes and they weren't getting proper psoas uh, contraction when they were running. 
So they just weren't strong in either of those muscles. So we've yep. given that as like their preparatory exercises. Oh, cool. So once we've done that, so we've identified that, hey, there's a movement screen, it's good or it's bad. So we've got the, we have a guideline for where we want to be. And then we look at length tension to see if there's anything that we need to basically lower the tension on, lower the volume on it. Yep. From there, neuromuscular assessments to see if there's any muscles that we really need to work on strengthening. So this is all within the scope of the personal trainer. Yeah. Then we go into specific orthopedic testing. The reason we do specific orthopedic testing is not to diagnose and not to say we're doctors or anything like that, but it's to find out who the hell we need to refer to and what we need to avoid at all costs. So we're basically doing our protecting ourselves from an insurance uh, perspective as well, because we're saying, all right, we can't train you until you see someone else and it's get cleared. But we're also making sure we don't give any exercises that will evoke anything. Yep. So one example for that, we check the hip for retroversion and antiversion. So the shape of the femoral head for a lot of clients. Because if someone does have that condition, quite often doing squats is a really bad idea. Okay. What happens in basic, but you know, really simple version of it, is the femoral head is too big for the hip socket. So when they go into hip flexion, like in a deep squat, what happens is it rubs on their labrum and their psoas tendon and a whole bunch of other stuff, and they get pinching and they get a bunch of pain. Yep. So we definitely don't want to squat these people because squatting is just going to cause them more damage in that area than it will offer beneficial results for like quadriceps and glute hypertrophy. Yeah. So we just avoid that. We will test our clients for other tests we might do. We might do a chromocorbicular and sternocorbicular impingement test. Like we might need to avoid dips, for example, and uh, AC impingement. We'll look at tests for knees, for disc stuff. And all that stuff is not to diagnose the client, but we might say, hey, we need you to see this person beforehand. Um, just to make sure that this is all okay. Uh, no, no dramas there. We refer them out. We've done them a duty of care. And we're not just throwing into an exercise program. There may be a thing going on. Yeah, so right. we don't fix the injury at that acute injury at any point or anything that's actually really damaged. We're making sure we're staying in our lane of focusing on movement patterns, focusing on overactive muscles and also weak muscles. So what people go to a PT for to get yep. exercised. And from that, what we identify a lot of the time is if the pain is in something more like movement, so the client's individual movement quality and strategies, or they've got a problem going on. If they've got a problem going on, we know what we can avoid with them, and we know who we need to send them to, uh, or if it's just movement-based that's causing them to have like that discomfort, that's our perfect opportunity to help them out. Cool. Um, so then once, you're at the, once you've kind of assessed all that, you will then have kind of the exercise you can do, can't do. Can't do. Need to do. Need to do. Yeah. Can do, can't do, need to do. And then where to possibly send them off to. If necessary. Yeah. Because yeah. with us, uh, with what we do at DC Health, uh, we really want, we deal with a lot of broken people. Like really broken people. Um, and uh, the more that uh, trainers work in the industry, the more broken people you're going to work with. Because yep. the longer you're in here, clientele uh, don't last forever. Unfortunately, I wish they did. Well, my longest one's 13 years, so she needs to go. But <laughs> too long, too long. Um, but you're going to come across people who are broken or have different injuries and have had life experience and have had pain and like plates. Like, like how many guys have injured themselves playing sport? Basically, everyone. everyone. <laughs> uh, like we, our intake form, I would say 80% of our intake forms have like a fair bit of stuff in the actual injury and medical history. Yep. Versus people who come in saying, no, I've never had anything happen to me in my life. And knock on wood. Yep. Like, you need to know how to do this and where to send these people off. Uh, you know, people, the thing that gets me about personal training 
in general is, you know, I think I've talked to you about before, it's an eight-week course, whatever it is, yeah. right? Physiotherapy, you do, you do university degree, chiropractic, you do university degree, whatever uh, health science it is that you do your degree in, you're there for three to five years yep. to work with people. To give them, like physios for example, you give people exercise with little bands after five years because you want to make sure that things are working right. Personal training goes to school for eight weeks and they can put 140 kilos on someone's back. Yeah. Like that just makes me shit my pants sometimes because uh, unless we've figured out that the client is able to be doing squatting, they should, we shouldn't be doing that. That's we, very it, true, yeah. It's like we get, we have the highest ability to basically mess people up with the least amount of training because we're putting load, repetition, speed, and force all into a system that may not be ready to deal with it and to tolerate it. That's true. Well, it's actually interesting. I think if you properly look at the insurance that personal trainers are able to get, it's often not to put 140 kilos on, on somebody's back. No. The insurance company's gonna get right out of there if you like that. No, that's true, but a lot of trainers will automatically start putting weight on people yeah. without having any kind of idea of what we're Well, that's just what I think people excite people. Like, it's like, well, that's what I want in the industry, like, to get show people strong, cool results that I get to people. Yeah. yeah. I want to get people strong, I want to get people jacked, I want to get them to do a poop with their shirt off, and I want them to look really awesome, give me a uh, shit ton of referrals, and I just train people who are strong all the time. Yeah. When really, the people who need personal training are people who have, you know, struggled to do exercise throughout their lives. They may have had like self-esteem issues, they've had injuries, they need help to be able to do it right so they don't keep perpetuating that cycle. Yeah. They're the main people who need help. The people who are already looking really good and lifting a lot of good weights, they probably don't need a personal trial. Yeah, they probably don't. A bit more idea. They got an idea, they, they, they're set up, they're set for it. So yeah, definitely uh, they, we need to help people who will come in and go, hey, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. I've hurt my knee a hundred times, I don't want to do it again. Every time yeah. I go to the gym, I hurt myself. When in our experience at our facility, the clients who come in and say they've never been able to train without pain or do exercise without pain, if we can get them out of pain and just some training them properly, they're stuck for life. Yep. So we had a referral the other day, this girl came in, uh, she came to see me for a treat, uh, like a treatment, she had shoulder pain. I assessed her, doing a lot of stuff, at that exact process that we talked about, I realized that she had next to no thoracic extension. So she had, very limited ability to reverse the thoracic curve and get her arms directly overhead. Her program that she did with her personal trainer, but she was paying as much as our semi-private for one session, uh, was like a ton of overhead pressing. Yep. She was in pain. She did hurt her. She was like, oh, I'm so sore after every gym session. I assessed her. I said, don't do it. Like, do these things to get your function restored better. And we did a whole bunch of exercises, uh, a bunch of like actual just corrective strategies and drills to get her to move correctly. Not diagnosing anything, just getting her to move the way the body is meant to move. Uh, she did the exercise that aggravated her. She had no pain. The next week, she signed up for our unlimited semi-private PT pack. You get someone out of pain. It's a, for a personal trainer out there who's looking at your own business. Getting someone out of pain is so much better for your business than getting someone to lose weight. Yeah, and looking really good because someone who loses weight, let's say they get they lose weight and they get a six pack, they want to show everyone. Fifty percent of their friends and their family are going to think they're just narcissists. Yeah. <laughs> they're self-obsessed narcissists who just, their life is the whole gym, blah, blah, blah. Get someone out of pain. Well, yeah, that kind of almost comes back to like an extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Like you're probably getting a six pack for an extrinsic motivation of like yeah. to impress people. Yeah. But pain is really intrinsic. Like pain is really intrinsic. Like you only really have that experience. Yeah, you're not doing it for anyone else by yourself. No, no one gives a shit about what other people think about them when they're in pain. Yeah. It's like, no, I hurt. That's why I'm being a bitch. Yeah. That's why I'm <laughs> whinging and moaning all the time because I can't walk. So if someone's in pain, 
and you get them out of pain and then, hey, you have the side effect of making them feel stronger, losing a bit of weight, blah, blah, blah. They tell everyone they know and people are like, yeah, man, you couldn't walk before. What the hell happened to you? Oh, I saw, uh, I saw Nick down at the gym. He, uh, he had me going in about two weeks. And it's like, really? Get, trainers can't do that, Nick's amazing. And then, um, you know, straight away you get a referral. I, have one, I literally got an email on the way here today from someone saying, hey, uh, my friend told me about it. She'd been unable to train about, I can literally get out now, with back pain. And she's always had back pain when she's training, now she's good. So she gave me a card. I'd really love to see what you guys do. Like, it's the best business we can have. Makes a lot of sense, yeah, actually. Thanks, I... Yeah, it's blowing my mind. Everyone's like, I want to do body composition and physique athletes. Well, there's not that many physique athletes out there. Yeah. Like, it's a very small, tight-knit, narcissistic community. No, they're cool. Um, I'm just teasing. But I'd even say, like, the amount of people I've heard have had bad results with physios and chiropractors. It's it, high. And we're, we're talking about, like, we talked about university degrees there as well. Like, if you can become somebody who is the go-to trainer or the go-to person for, for a certain pain point, that's definitely going to get you heaps of business. Yeah, exactly. Like when I was at Fitness First many years ago, I was doing 60 sessions a week. I was the rehab guy. Yeah, right. And I, like, I'm going to be honest, I started out having no freaking idea. Yeah. I had no idea. I paid a lot of money per week to learn from a trainer who was very well skilled in that. I paid nearly quite my wage, actually, uh, quite what I was earning at one point. Um, it was like I worked just to pay him to learn that. And I would get referred clients and I would spend uh, nights, I would spend the night researching what the hell I had to do, figure out what the condition was in half cases, what caused it, and then try and create an exercise program around that condition that would just do what it could. Avoid what caused pain and address what needed to be strengthened. Yeah. And then over time that refined and refined to the system where now it's like a plug and play system. Makes it easy. Which makes well, it really that easy. That actually leads well into the next question I was gonna ask. So, um, We've gotten all this results from the movement screening, um, from the process that you take people through. What, how does that then get put into a program? So say I'm on a DC health and performance yep. program, am I coming in and I'm doing my static stretching first or am I doing my corrective exercises first? Like how do you guys then start to arrange? I know how I would sort of do it, but I'm interested to hear your, your plan. Yep, okay, good question. So uh, again, it will depend on the results of the screen. So of course, the screen kind of has uh, the screen and the other assess has kind of an algorithm built into it. Uh, we basically plug and play it in for most people. Okay. So if someone comes in and they've got uh, a bad leg raise screen, which is our deadlift clearing test, um, and they've got weak glutes, we literally say poor deadlift, weak glute protocol, yeah. and we give them that protocol and we retest it and see how it goes. Okay. So we can literally individualize the warm up for each client based on what their individual presentation is. Yep. And then from a programming perspective, from the screen will tell us what uh, actual conditioning exercises we're going to give them. And one of the big things that we do with uh, the rehab stuff, which a lot of people don't do, is we use strength training immediately after it to actually lock in what we've done. So this is yeah. where a lot of people, they, they do all the, the stuff to change how the nervous system works and how the body works and muscle tension, but they don't actually make anything of it at the end. So if you do like a bunch of static stretching and a bunch of neuromuscular drills where you're getting muscles to basically be a bit more aware of how to fire, you've, based, you've created the window of opportunity yep. to then load that new pattern. And strength basically just is like pressing save. So I'm sure you've written a document on a word processor, you've typed away, you've created all this information, and then all of a sudden you forgot to press save and you've lost the whole damn thing. Yep. And then you're back to where you started. 
So for us, we'll mobilize what needs to be mobilized, uh, strengthen up whatever needs to be strengthened up. And then once the client's created like a new range of motion, say it's in their hamstrings and their hip hinge, we get them doing remaining deadlifts. That's it, that day, yeah. that session. Um, we do that because the strength will basically, if you make a muscle stronger at the end of the range, it will find that range safer and you'll get a little bit more flexibility, flexibility mobility gains out of it. Yeah. It basically locks everything in. So over a period of time, like if you come in and you're gaining like five degrees each session, to five, 10 degrees, whatever it may be, over a period of time, that person's in normal. And they're, maintain, they're getting a training effect the whole time, yeah. which is you know, part of the reason they're coming here. And uh, we're addressing all their needs. So yeah, uh, one thing that trains together into rehab is you need to create a training effect at the same time. If you don't, if you don't create a training effect for a client, like you know they're coming to you because they've got pain, they still want to get a body composition out, outcome. So you don't ignore that. And for a lot of conditions, and and a lot of people have looked at me like whatever, what? What do you mean? Strength fixes stuff. Yeah, being strong fixes a lot of stuff for a lot of people. Um, Someone's got uh, upper back, uh, they get a lot of anterior shoulder pain, get a really strong upper back. It doesn't really happen. If someone's got a sore lower back, get a really strong ass. Yeah. Your lower back gets supported. Um, so we're always looking to how can we do this because this is the next step of bulletproofing them. Yep. Yeah, that's, that rings true for, for me as well. I know in the past when I've had injuries, it's been really important that I go through the process to actually strengthen up that, that area almost straight after doing the exercise yeah and I've seen good physios and good chiros who have made sure that they've like planned out that that next process of the way you go from it yeah you always need to have somewhere to go yeah so in our process of what we do for having somewhere to go if someone's had an injury and like they've hurt themselves in a particular way uh, we want to make sure first of all that they're screening whatever they need to do to get their screen and the neuromuscular patterns into what I guess inverted commas norm is so what's normal what what works best for them then we want to strengthen that pattern to an acceptable level using the basic you know basic exercises that would you do you would do and then we want to then and this is the next step that so many people don't take is then we train them and strengthen them in really shitty positions okay yeah so this is where i've talked about before you know we want to get them back to a normal level of function without pain we want to then get them stronger and performing better then we want to train the mechanisms or train whatever tissues we need to do to avoid the injury so i'm going to use a really simple a common example here there's an exercise that gained a lot of notoriety around the world uh, a couple of years ago, the Jefferson Curl. Yes. Have you seen it? Yes. The gymnastics bodies exercise, but Chris Summer popularized it. Yep. Basically, the world's ugliest looking deadlift. The round back deadlift, yeah. individually flexing the spine under load, which is supposed to make your spine explode. It's not like that. <laughs> it's uh, actually like a fantastic exercise for strengthening all the little uh, soft tissues and structures that actually go between each vertebrae. Yeah. It's designed to do that and increase someone's uh, ability to tolerate flexion. Because flexion is a daily movement pattern that we need to do. And if you can't flex your spine, uh, you really are limited. So if we had a client come in that had a history of like spinal injury, like disc pain, for example, it's all cleared up now. First thing we do is we'll make sure they're pain-free. Yep. Pain-free, getting their movement patterns up to an acceptable level. From there, we want to then get them stronger than what they were before. Getting strong because again, strength fixes stuff. Yep. Final step is then to take them into Jefferson curls into an intelligent, slow, systematic progression to make sure that the mechanism of injury, like so, disc, it's a flexion based injury, is adequately and intelligently prepared. So when they do flex their spine invariably, of course they will again. No one 
can go through line without flexing their spine, their body is prepared for the rigors and the demands of that particular movement. Yeah. So with ankle sprains, we train people to have their ankles strong when they're, uh, they're rolling out to the side. People have done their knees. We train their knees to be able to drop in um, and not find it painful. It has a lot of other powerful benefits besides uh, just like training physical structures. It also trains the person's psychology. So with injuries, like I don't know how many injuries you've had, I've had a ton of injuries yeah. from different sports and stuff like that. There's a massive mental game to be overcome. Yeah. Like if you've uh, hurt yourself, say hurting your ankle playing, so many people hurt their ankles playing basketball and stuff like that and they just quit. Yeah. Because getting on the court is more of a mental hurdle than actually overcoming the injury. Yeah. If someone's hurt their back deadlifting, it's so, well, thing. As an example, I tore my medial ligament yeah. in my knee. And it was a yeah, it was a massive mental hurdle to get back onto the court just because if I stepped a certain direction, my knee would like suddenly pop and I'd feel like really uncomfortable yeah. for a period of time. So it, it definitely is a big hurdle to go through. Huge hurdle. And like trainers will most commonly see it in deadlifts and squats. People hurt their backs doing deadlifts and squats and it's such a hurdle for them to get past. Yeah. And that's limiting to the client for a number of different reasons. Results is one, like, you know, deadlifts are awesome, squats are awesome. But two, um, the person's perception of pain changes and perception of what causes pain, they become more likely to give themselves an injury. So if they're, giving, if they're putting themselves in a situation where it's really lose-lose. So as trainers, our job is to intelligently and in a controlled fashion, be able to get people to be able to do stuff they couldn't do before and then train the mechanism in which they injured which is something that I go over a lot with my mentoring students and stuff like that. It's not a process that you rush through. Yeah. A lot of trainers will see Jefferson Curls and they're like, oh cool, I'll do half body weight. And uh, they wonder why their back's feeling like a piece of shit the next day. Yeah. It needs to be a slow, systematic process. Yeah. Definitely. The reason, I've uh, been fat, sorry, I'll just so people might be interested, is that the healing capacity of muscles is very different to the healing capacity of other soft tissues. Like a muscle, you strain the muscle or you do a workout, how long does it take to recover? A couple of days, right? Yeah. You can destroy your quads, they're good in like four days. They're really good quad destruction workout, might take a week. <laughs> Biceps and deltoids, you can destroy them in the gym, how long they recover, like within a day. Yeah. Uh, they're smaller muscle groups. Do a disc, do a ligament, do a cartilage, how long does that take? Long time. Uh, because they don't have very much blood flow. So the healing rates for that connected tissue is a lot longer. So we might uh, have someone doing an exercise like a Jefferson curl, they may not progress for like 12 weeks at some points. They just keep doing the same exercise and the body just gradually heals and gets stronger slowly. Yeah. But the exercise, to bulletproof yourself, it's a consistency process. Yeah. Rather it's like than press and save that you were talking about as well. Yeah, well, press and save. In a different way. <laughs> yeah, press and save in a different way. Cool. Um, is there anything kind of like, I would say this is dealing straight with the injury, yeah. um, which kind of lost how to pronounce the word that I've written down, but anyway, allopathic. Well, so we would almost say this is like an allopathic solution to the pain that's there. Do you think there's more in a holistic method of, of resolving an injury or, or rehabbing an injury? For example, like if somebody is chronically dehydrated, they're probably going to be in a lot more pain than somebody who isn't. So that's another sort of holistic way that we can look at it. Or their nutrition or their diet, it's, they're eating a lot of shitty food, so they've got inflammation chronically around their body as well. Do you look at those factors in rehab? or Yes. Absolutely. Uh, that all falls under the umbrella of was very evidence-based, and a lot of people think the holistic approach, in some regards, is not. Um, but for pain, it absolutely is in the biopsychosocial model of pain. Yeah. Which you, uh, I talked about. Um, you talked about it, and um, Luke Tyson, I think. Yeah. 
colleague also mentioned it as well. Yeah, so everything influences everything, basically, yeah. in a nutshell. So clients like psychology, all that kind of stuff will affect pain. Uh, if we're looking at just really from a nutritional perspective, then you know, we look at what the body has increased demands for different uh, nutrients during injury. So it has increased needs for calories. Like if you want, to, if someone's injured, one of the best things to do is up their calories. Yeah. Because the body has needs those extra resources to heal. Having anti-inflammatory stuff, it can help. It, for some people, it can speed it up. There was a study recently on collagen ingestion, um, improving collagen synthesis in certain injuries. So in certain cases. So yeah, you need to look at nutrition for a lot of people. Dehydration is a big one too. I actually had funny story. I had a <laughs> client. Uh, many years ago come to me for a treatment session with this really recurrent back pain that just would not go away and she had seen everyone under the sun and, and I was like okay looking at her there's nothing really too wrong that I can find like nothing that I could see immediately that was causing this problem and uh, so I started just doing some lifestyle questions like just asking and like, so I'm like just basically ticking my boxes like while I was racking my brain thinking of what the hell yeah. to do next I was I was uh, you know, talking to make time. I went, so how much water do you drink? And she's like, I don't. I went, pardon? Who? Uh, and she's like, I don't drink water, ever. Like, do you drink anything? And she's like, I have one cup of tea a day, and then I have uh, like a gin or something at night. I'm like, that's all you can consume fluid-wise? And that was, the answer was yes. Like, one cup of tea, and I was like, so that's like not even two cups. Yeah. And now alcohol's dehydrating you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was gin as well. It's, <laughs> I was like, how can so then my next thought was okay, she's really dehydrated. So there is a principle in, or a treatment methodology idea in osteopathy called viscera somatic reflexes. How organs can and viscera can refer to muscles and cause pain. Yeah. It's kinda of like when you get a heart the most common example is a heart attack, you get pain radiating radiating down the left arm. Yeah. Women period pain, they get low back pain, anterior, uh, pelvic pain as well in the muscles. The muscles feel like crap. How often do you shit? was my next question and she's like maybe once a week and I was like what? I'm like, how can you eat? she's like three to five times a day I'm like well there's your problem right you're full of shit uh, you've got you're packed up <laughs> you've got some serious things going on I think you need to you need something uh, so her whole treatment strategy was uh, drink water yep. she was so dehydrated she couldn't poop uh, she was out of pain within two weeks uh, I didn't really do anything I just yeah. said Call once a day. Did you drink eight cups of water? Did you drink eight cups of water? Did you drink eight cups of water? Like, no, no, four, five, six. Are you pooping every day? Yeah. Okay, cool. See you uh, She was out of pain after that. So yeah, the holistic approach to pain is something to be very aware of, and particularly with the biopsychosocial model, uh, looking at how you communicate what's happening with the client is of like utmost importance. So. What trainers, physios, cars do, if there's any kind of dysfunction in the body, and it's like it's not really dysfunction, it's just where they're at, they tell the client that deadlifts will mess your back up, squats will kill you, squats will break your knees. And the client automatically then gets a fear. So yeah. automatically gets a fear and starts to believe that the movement pattern is bad. That's going to avoid them, cause them to avoid the movement pattern, to be fearful during it, be apprehensive. And if apprehensive and fearful, I don't know about you, if I'm scared shitless, I'm not going to do good form in my squat. No. I'm going to put myself in more risk. If deadlifts, if you're in fear, I've seen clients who are scared deadlifts, they rush the movement. They want to get it over and done with. They don't want to learn the pattern, they want to just survive it. So how we communicate what's happening to the clients, I personally never communicate with the client in anything in terms of pain. 
Like if they've got crap hamstrings, crap everything, they're just in terrible shape. Uh, Movement-wise, I don't say that they're gonna be in pain. I just say that if they wanna perform better and get a better performance outcome, let's get these things sorted out. And that then they're not avoiding pain, they're actually pursuing pleasure. Yeah. Which for most people is, um, you, know, you don't wanna to go to the gym and find out, you know, you're already going to the gym because you might have, uh, you wanna lose weight, you don't feel good about yourself, you wanna be more confident. You don't wanna then find out, oh great, I also move like a piece of shit and I'm probably gonna hurt myself. Yeah. It doesn't create a supportive environment that we're looking to create with our clients. Cool. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Uh, well, I thought we could talk about a few specific things. How are we going? Oh, yeah, the time measure. Uh, we got, we can give another five minutes or so. Right? Yeah, cool. Oh, well, let's go into a couple of specifics. Now, I actually get clients who are um, probably quite a number of clients who have neck pain. They yeah. come in with chronic neck pain. So that'd be a good um, discovery session for me. That's probably not through your movement screening that you're, well, actually you might discover an imbalance in the, the shoulder mobility, yeah. which is then leading on to the neck pain, but how would you go about somebody who's in sort of chronic neck pain? Chronic neck pain? Neck pain is kind of like where I uh, find drawing the line um, with trainer slash therapist yeah. becomes important because the neck is something that we don't really train. Yeah. Like we can train everything below the neck. Dealing with the neck, it's more about uh, avoiding anything that exacerbates it and fix everything below. Yep. So I uh, talk a lot about a joint by joint approach to training. Yeah, I like with, that. Yeah. So for a lot of time with neck pain, I'm looking at basically mobilizing the thoracic spine and creating a whole bunch of scapular stability in different positions. And then I will do different cueing techniques for neck position. So maintaining what's called a pack neck, like tucking, giving yourself yep. a double chin, tongue in the physiological rest position, so which is on the roof of the mouth, and implementing nasal breathing with these particular clients. So it reduces their use of the secondary respiratory muscles, which are sternocleidomastoid, pectoralis minor, and a few other ones. Oh, cool. Elevated scapula. So if you relax those muscles a little bit, or you take away their need to do all the work, tension automatically comes away from the neck, but you're not touching the neck and doing anything. Yeah. So I kind of play it by avoiding anything that exacerbates the problem and just sorting it out from there. Yep and then uh, referring out if I need to the neck pain. Like an example, my partner, she just, uh, she actually got like a bulging disc in her neck, like woke up with it, like random shit, nothing happened, nothing you could do about it. Uh, got diagnosed, yep, okay, cool, you can't really do anything, well we can. We just worked around it for a period of two weeks until it kind of like the pain resolved itself. Yeah. I did a little bit of, I did some soft tissue work and stuff like that, but I'm qualified for other, from other courses and stuff like that. But training wise, we didn't really change too much. Yeah. We just did everything with more of a focus on maintaining neck alignment and uh, adjusting exercises to work around it. Okay, cool. I think that's a probably pretty safe approach. Yeah, um, breathing is a huge one with that. That was actually what I was going to lead into. So you didn't mention that in the rehab pre-screening, but are you checking their breathing pattern or having a look at how they're breathing? Breathing is an interesting one because it's another one where the dial's going up and down to fit this industry. Like you need to breathe. Uh, every client doesn't know how to breathe. It's like, okay, they walked in, I think they're doing okay. Is there, could their breathing be a little bit better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, I don't want to spend too much time on it unless necessary because people aren't coming to see me as a breathing coach. Yeah. If I find that their breathing is their main cause for their, uh, like their increased thoracic kyphosis, which means they have the ability to reach overhead and they've got pain in that, in their overhead pressing, then I want to address breathing, but I want to do it in a way that detracts least from the training experience. Yeah. Uh, I want to force them to breathe diaphragmatically because it is better for a whole bunch of different reasons. 
I want to do it, as I say, in a way that's not disruptive. So one method I get clients to do is I get them to have a drink of water and hold it in their mouth okay. and do the set. Uh, for a client who's a chronic mouth breather, so let's just say sample, uh, overstressed, anxious, uh, a whole bunch of stuff going on, really tight neck, heads forward, their shoulders are always up around their ears, they look like they're going like, to punch someone in the face if they jump around the corner. I'll get them to do their sets like that. Yep. It has some, a few other benefits, like it decreases some sympathetic tone in their nervous system, they get increased parasympathetic activation, they relax their neck, they get their posture back, and it teaches them how to breathe from their nose. It gets them to breathe using the apparatus that we're meant to breathe with. Mm. Uh, it's just, I only do it to the point where they don't need to worry about it anymore, and their, their ability to, to move without pain is sorted. If someone comes to me and they're like purely for breathing stuff, I'd be like, you need to go see a respiratory physiotherapist or a butaco practitioner or something like that. Uh, I don't know. Butaco? Butaco was a, it's a breathing methodology invented by a Russian guy, someone butaco. I uh, works really well with asthma, but okay. it does uh, a whole bunch of other stuff too. It's very much diet yeah. and breathing orientated. So we can, we can do some of that, but I normally breathing, I like just teach clients how to breathe diaphragmatically for when we need to do bracing strategies for yeah. heavy lifting, which is part of the coaching experience or we give them something else to focus on, water in the mouth, which automatically forces them to breathe correctly. Yep. They can't breathe through their mouth and hyperventilate if they're gonna choke on water. And it's also safe. Like, the worst thing that can happen is you can spray with water. Do you start diaphragmatically? Diaphragmatically? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. got me, thanks. Um, do you start breathing that way if you breathe through your nose? Is that a byproduct of it? It will uh, lead to that happening, yeah. Oh, right. Because if you, you can, you can breathe into your upper chest, but generally over a period of time, your breathing will slow down. Yeah. It has no choice. And then you'll start filling, filling up the lower two-thirds of the lungs. Okay. Which leads to better gas exchange and a whole bunch of other physiological benefits, which reduces mental stress. That's why everyone says breathe, eat, breathe, breathe. Um, Meditation is all about breathing uh, and focusing on one thing. So if we do that, it, it's not to force the client to breathe into their stomach, because a lot of time you tell people to take a deep breath and you force them, what happens? Their chest just expands. Yeah. They're not going to do it right. You can't force something that's a subconscious behavior. So that's where a lot of people miss the boat with breathing. It's something we do. It's kind of like saying, like slowing your heart rate down is a very specialized skill. It's a very hard thing to do. Like archers learn to do it. They take beta blockers and all kinds of stuff, like in the Olympics, so they can slow the heart down so they can shoot between beats. Yep. Um, there's less amount of disruption to the actual shot there. We can't. So like just like for most clients, we can't change them how to work their heart or their peristaltic rate, how fast they digest foods. We can't really change a subconscious pattern with conscious cueing. So we give them something that's just going to encourage them to work the right way where they don't have to think about it. Yeah, right. So it's the most effective way I've found to do it. And it makes the client go, okay, cool, I'm still getting a training effect. I feel like a bit of a douche. But they end up focusing on the uh, session a lot more and doing it right because they can't blabber on about their weekend or whatever. It's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> so you get them to hold up water in the just mouth. when they're doing lifting or like throughout the whole lifting session? Lifting or cardio. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Uh, in semi-private stuff, I'll, I'll get them to do it through the whole session because then I, have, I can talk to someone else. <laughs> I can move on. One-on-one um, -on -one I've done it. Sometimes I get people just to do it at work. Yeah. Um, like they might say they sit at work desk job and they're not like on the computer all day. But I mean they're not on the phone all day, pardon me, they're probably on the computer. Uh, just get them to hold some water in their mouth or something like that while they're working. Naturally, they're diaphragmatically breathed. Oh, cool. They, they just don't even have to think about it. And the plus side, they'll, they'll swallow whenever someone comes by. Yep. Most people are dehydrated. They drink more water. It's a really simple lifestyle. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a hack. It's a hack. I hate that word. <sighs> but it's, it's, a way, it's a cheat. It's a way 
to get them to do something subconsciously. Yeah, that's cool. It's a good little trick. I'm yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, there are a few other questions we're going to ask just around specific things. Is there anything you wanted to cover specifically um, for rehab? Not particularly. I, I just the main thing that I like to get across to everyone is just rehab. And I heard this from a guy called Charlie Weingroff. Rehab equals training. Training equals rehab. It's just all a continuum. Yeah, it's all a continuum. Some of the most advanced athletes in the world, the most uh, do rehabby type exercises to keep them going, to keep them performing at the top level. It's not a rehab exercise; it's just an exercise. We just want to create a training effect at whatever levels the client at, at whatever level the client is at, and then figure out how we can take them to the next level where they don't have to worry about that having that concept of rehab anymore. Yeah, they can just focus on doing what they want to do. Do you program in like specific phases where? The majority of exercises are like learning about re-controlling and, and controlling specific movements after they've passed it. So as an example, like someone I've learned a lot from is Ian King. Yep. He'll program, as they get more advanced, less and less, but he'll program specific control phases where you're doing like say a squat at a four to two tempo throughout the movement to re-regress it down to a point where you actually able to relearn the pattern properly. Or in that same that same program, it might have just a chunk of different smaller group exercises. Yeah, we'll probably do that. We we'll do that in that periodization anyway. Yeah. So every like for say we've got someone in the hypertrophy program, uh, as their goal, uh, they'll do one phase of like volume based work, the moderate intensity. The next phase will be volume based work, lower intensity but higher reps. Yep. Then they're going to metabolite training, which is like basically health, like drop sets and uh, creating metabolic stress in the muscle. Then they'll go into a strength phase, but the strength phase will focus very much on building up strength and the key things that we want to build for the next phase, and then everything else is to make sure that they're working okay. Yeah. So they'll be doing structural balance work in that phase, making sure their muscles work. Strength guys, stronger, stronger, stronger. All strength training uh, accessory movement is corrective exercise. Yep. Like uh, uh, you, your back loses its ability to maintain arch in the squat when you do good mornings. Yeah. Is that corrective exercise or strength exercise? It's both. Yep. Uh, so strength guys, they'll copy, uh, they'll get a bit of that in their hypertrophy phase, which I'll get every three to four months. It depends on what phase of the program we're running for them, uh, where they'll try and hypertrophy the muscles that don't really get trained that much. Yeah. But fat loss guys, because um, they're the three main goals that we work with, they basically get that all put into the finishes of their workout. We make uh, exercises to keep them healthy as part of the finishing part of the workout. So you know, they got like. Every fat loss person wants to train their abs. Same thing. Uh, we may as well do ab training that basically improves the ability to stabilize their trunk, um, trains their hips in the right range of motion. We even put flex like mobility type drills and high rep stuff. Yep. Uh, like lateral lunges down at high rep will gash you out and they'll uh, mobilize your hips in all different types of directions. Yeah. So we always include for fat loss guys because they generally do more dumb shit. Uh, <laughs> Like outside it, they'll do more, not okay, it's done, they'll do more volume of exercise overall. Yeah. Hypertrophy guys, we put it in the strength phases, and the strength guys are always doing something. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think that's really smart to just constantly have yeah. that element on it there. Particularly for strength. Yeah. yeah. Hypertrophy, the cool thing is uh, if you do hypertrophy well, like you can actually keep a pretty decent structural balance and shape. Like a uh, well balanced physique is a more aesthetic one. Yeah. So if hypertrophy programs are just like, I'm going to do chest, 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 and arms and not do any back movement, then you're gonna look like crap. You don't have a big chest, but you look shit. Yeah. I hope like physique stuff is about. You probably feel shit as well. <laughs> probably feel shit. Like the ideal physique is a wide back. Yeah. So 
shoulders back, open, get the lats slowed down, doing a whole bunch of face pulls and stuff like that's probably a really good idea for physique athletes. Yep. Glutes are really important now too. Uh, so doing a whole bunch of glute stuff helps protect the back. Um, you can train physique athletes to be quite structurally balanced, yep. which is a good thing. Yeah, perfect. Cool. Um, just to wrap up, how, in case it's the first time someone's listened to this, yep. how does somebody reach Paul Mildred? Uh, two different, uh, Facebook probably the best on our website. So the website's dchealthperformance.com.au. Uh, go to that, uh, we have inquiry forms there, so you can just email us through that. Or Facebook, there's DC Health Performance or Paul Meldrum. Cool. Uh, professional pages go to that. I post stuff about how the, there'll be a lot more stuff coming out about rehab at the moment because it's seriously lacking in what people can do with it. Awesome. And there's some things coming up rehab wise yes. from your direction. So yeah. if you were interested in this podcast, what? What could you be on the lookout for? In terms of, uh, um, so if somebody was interested in this, in, in this sort of stuff, yeah. Oh, cool. So we've got a mentorship program where we go through this and we also have, uh, we go through this week by week where I take you through the whole process, learning screening, learning the range of motion, uh, length tension assessments, doing the neuromuscular test and then the actual corrective strategies. And then we've got an online course where basically the whole thing, everything there is being filmed and loaded onto it. The whole process where like there's a whole in-depth week on the actual breathing approach so you know what the information is you may not have to apply it like you can apply it simply as what i said uh every single topic is delved into a ton of detail and it's there so you can basically constantly refer to it what i like about the course and what i'm doing with it is i am being an asshole and not letting the content uh be fed to you unless you pass unless you yeah. do a test like uh too many tests are too easy to do with rehab stuff, if you want to do it well, it is complicated, it is hard. Um, you do need to put a lot of effort into it. So there's testing for each module, but the other thing is you've got all the videos there all the time, all the resources, and I basically answer questions all the time on it. So okay. that's uh, literally on sale on next week. Oh, really? Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, jump on and have a look at that. Um, yeah, let's, let's wrap it up there. Thanks, cool. Thanks so much, Nick. Cool.